It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Bill Hemmer of Fox News. He is obviously someone who has guided us through a number of different elections over the years, and he's currently doing his preparation work for covering the midterms in November. We talk about the approaches that he uses to trying to do the kind of research and preparation that is necessary to do great coverage on election nights, as well as some of the seats that he's particularly interested in going into these midterms as indicative of the way that the night's going to play out. Bill Hemmer, coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, good to be with you. Looking forward to this. So I uh, I have to ask you, just starting out, uh, how many elections have you covered on Fox? Mm. On Fox? Um, 06, 08, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. But my first election was at CNN in mm-hmm. 1998. With Tucker Carlson. <laughs> um, you believe that? That's uh, that's before uh, John Stewart did the worst thing that he ever did and destroyed the Crossfire. Um, uh, still, still uh, uh, missed by by uh, uh, television fans and the fans of argumentation all around the world. Yes. Um, the the '98 election was one that obviously took place in the context of the. Clinton impeachment, um, mm-hmm. uh, if I and uh, you know when it came to sort of sitting down and preparing to cover that midterm, uh, what changed between the way that you did it back then and the way that you do it now? Wow, everything. Um, great question. I just think there's so much data and information out there right now that if if you want to take the time uh, and put in the time uh, to handicap the races in your own way, you can do that. And I, with all the interactive material we have online, we're going to have an app very soon here at Fox that people can play along at home, literally play along at home and make your own best guess. I think I think it's it's much more encompassing than it was ever um, in 1998. Um, I, I think Tucker and I were on overnight duty and we're all jacked up because I, I think there were some West Coast races that may go this way or that way. And um, uh, I, I don't even remember if we, uh, did that much TV time that night, uh, but we had a great conversation, <laughs> and I'll never forget that. I recall paying attention to elections in those days with the Michael Barone Almanac of American Politics. Yes, the, that they would uh, issue 
um, which had, uh, you know, a deep dive from National Journal into all of the different uh, uh, districts and, and what was going on and the makeup of them, um, the kind of thing that you can find online today. I was thinking about this the other day because I was thinking about it in the context of how different the NFL draft plays out. Where, you know, in the old days, you would have to buy magazines and things to read up about players who you maybe never saw on TV. And now everybody sees everything and they have opinions about guys, you know, uh, formed by all of these different scouts and material that you can find online. It, in operating in that kind of environment, uh, it has to be kind of uh, demanding of someone like you because uh, any kind of mistake that you make about, you know, a town in one district or a portion of a, a factor that could play in, in a certain uh, place uh, has to be called out immediately online by all the folks who have the, yeah. the, the information at their <laughs> fingertips. I'm a recipient of that <laughs> quite a bit, actually. But it helps, you know, improves your job. If you listen to mm -hmm. uh, viewers in a lot of ways, um, the, they'll catch the mistake that was made and, and you don't have to make it a second time. You mentioned Michael Barone. That guy's hugely talented, and I, I, I would say deeply missed um, because there I've been, in, in my view, I, look, I love geography. I love politics. I like how the math comes together and all this, and I, I like the strategies on both sides. I used to be a sportscaster, you know, growing up. That's how I got into the business, and this, you know, election nights are about as close as you get to ESPN. And some people may not like it that way, but that's the way it is. You know, you're crunching numbers and you're trying to notice trends. And Barone was so brilliant at it because he could tell you the River Valley and who settled there in 1820 and how the valley changed over the next 50 or 100 years and, and to what it's become today. And then he'll reflect on issues like NAFTA and, and how it changed the um, uh, the lifestyle for the people who live there. I mean, he was really a unique person. There are... I, is there a handful? Maybe. Maybe a handful of people. I'm counting them on less than one hand in the yeah. country who have that skill. Uh, so, for me, I, I would tell you, I, we started studying a month ago. And we're, we're, we are knee deep, especially into these house races, trying to understand them. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I was just going to tell you that I once uh, I've had the pleasure of having uh, dinner with Michael uh, many times and uh, or or hosting him to talk to various uh, bloggers back then, writers and that kind of thing. Um, and I remember in 2016, or I guess, no, this would have been in 2008, uh, asking yes. him uh, uh, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, we knew that she had, uh, you know, she had lived in uh, Chicago at a certain time and obviously uh, just uh, based on where her district was, we had been asking whether um, uh, it was possible that Don Rumsfeld had been the member of Congress who represented her, just like given the timing, because, you know, he was briefly uh -huh. a, a member of Congress. And immediately Barone said, well, no, because she lived here and the way that the <laughs> district line ran, he knew exactly where she lived and where the district line was like <laughs> way back then. It's remarkable the stuff. You know, during that election, it was the Democrat, all the action was on the Democratic side, Clinton versus yeah. Obama, right? And yeah. we were we were here like on Saturday night, so two o'clock in the morning waiting on Nebraska to come in with the results. And Barone was the, he was the magic man yeah. who could stretch forever um, on the regions and what was important and why. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a very unique talent, and I'm glad that you appreciate him the way I do. Yeah. The, uh, 
the interesting thing about, you know, house races is, uh, you know, especially in this uh, context uh, this time around is you end up with a lot of people, especially in wave elections, who you don't anticipate winning, uh, who find a way to squeak through or to, or to win in a marginal race. Um, and, uh, and that requires you to kind of, you know, do a lot of very quick research to figure out, wait a minute, who was this person? Because nobody really thought they could win. Mm-hmm. When you approach that, uh, sort of challenge, uh, what are some of the things that you look for? What are, what is the way that you try to approach an, uh, that type of analysis to provide the viewers, uh, with what's going to be most important to them? Yeah. What, what I think Ben is that, um, in 2018, the last midterm we did, our, we, we debuted our Fox News voter analysis. First time we ever did it. And we called the House at 9.33 p.m. that night for the Democrats. Um, what, what I have done, not purely set up on time zones, but pretty close to it, is I, I've already gone in. At, it's kind of like March Madness. I'll tell you another sports analogy here. I, I'm seeding these races. Mm. And r- right now I have them in columns from seeds one, two, three, four, and five. And so I think we're going to have an idea. 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30 for sure. I would say especially in the 7.30 to 8.30 hour, um, who's turning out to vote? And um, therein therein lies the story for how we can move from seed number one to seed number two and move across the country geographically and based on time zones. But I, I think the, the trickiest part of trying to figure this out is we just had a census and a lot of these lines have been redrawn. Mm-hmm. And w- when you get into it, it's, it, it's a bit of a puzzle. Well, what were they before? Uh, did it 10 Democrat or did it 10 Republican um, tender trend? And, and what is it now? How have the state legislatures, how have the governors tried to take the geography and the populations of their states and do it legally through a lot of court challenges that we watched for the past year to figure out how they can most favorably set their state up to have to have a majority? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's the real challenge right now, just understanding that basic knowledge. You, given looking back at the different elections that you've covered there's always these kind of, of given built in fundamentals that people look to the performance of the economy, the uh, uh, president's popularity and his own uh, party's popularity, you know, that is attached to that. Uh, but then there are also, you know, some random issues that crop up, you know, things that can determine the outcome, uh, you know, even in potentially, you know, a wave year for Republicans where they may lose because of, you know, a, a candidate who has some particular defects or, uh, you know, some late breaking stories or gaffes or things like that. In your experience, uh, how much do those factor in or are they more of a media sideshow to the fundamentals of basically mm-hmm. economic performance and how popular the president? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's you got to take it on an individual basis. If you were to ask me today, I mean, we're having this discussion at the end of September. I I really felt that thing. Look, elections crystallize things. It's almost like after you have the vote and you count them up and you look back at the result and think, oh, of course, mm-hmm. of course. That why were we even debating that? That makes entirely entire sense to me and to you and everybody else. Um, my feeling today is that you've got option A and you've got option B, 
And option A is that the winds at Biden's back, it, it came back over the summer, and abortion is really going to tilt the tide toward Democrats. Option B is stock markets in the tank. Uh, inflation's out of control. The economy is suffering. Uh, there's war in Eastern Europe, and, and Putin is running the war. And I thought the Washington Post and ABC this past weekend so, sort of showed us that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think as we sit here today, some six weeks removed from from the election, I think the trend is is toward option B, um, despite what we have been talking about on TV for the past month, mm-hmm. which would have been option A. That's not to say that Democrats can't do well in these House races or the governor's race in Michigan. Abortion is on the ballot there. That's mm-hmm. not to say that they can squeak by in some of these uh, congressional districts in Southern California around the Orange County area. That's always very close. Uh, abortion is on the ballot there. Um, that that could make a difference. I'm not here to say whether it does as of tonight. I will give you that answer, I think, on November 9th. That, that's a Wednesday morning. <laughs> so uh, I have been talking, and I'm sure you talk too, to a number of different political observers. I try to figure out the smart consultants, the ones who, you know, uh, pull out the stops and are able to win in, in difficult situations or who focus on a particular niche of the electorate, you know, such as Hispanic voters or the like, and talk to them, get their background info. You also, though, when you get that info, have to sift through and basically understand, you know, this is coming from someone who's trying to win an election and trying to convince me that they're going to win an election. Uh, When you turn to those types of sources for uh, info or background, how do you kind of make that determination yourself about this is a useful nugget? Uh, versus this is someone who's probably trying to spin me on the idea that it's this a is great, closer than it really is. That's a good is. one. It's a good one. I, I, I think there's only one way to do that, and you got to talk to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they can all be from – a lot of them can be from one party, and a lot of them can be for another party. But you remember what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let, let's see – Let's see what their how their opinions play, shall we say? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I've got my favorite people that I can go to. I, I and I know they have a bias, but I think they're fair in their bias. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a lot of other people just have an opinion, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, or a spin, as you mentioned. Um, I mean, one I, one way that I sort of approach it myself is. Uh, you know, is just sort of, as you said, to see how their predictions play out. Mm-hmm. And and if their predictions or the way that they understand a race lines up with what outcomes are, I tend to go back to them more. Um, no doubt, Ben. That, yeah. that, to me, is just sort of a, a proven way of doing it. But it it's not, I think, you know, to your point, you really do have to talk to a lot of different people in order to get your, your arms wrapped around things. One of the interesting dynamics, for instance, this cycle has been that there seems to be this split between Mitch McConnell and the approach that he has and Rick Scott and the NRSC when it comes to the way that they're spending money in these various Senate races. And while former President Trump obviously had a huge impact in terms of the nomination battles that played out uh, and really, you know, pretty much ran the field in terms of what uh, the outcomes are, Uh, He's yet to really spend money on behalf of any of these candidates, many of whom emerged from pretty difficult primaries without a lot of resources. 
Do you think that that's going to change between now and election day? It's a great question. And um, if yeah. it doesn't, what does that say about you know the potential to sort of have a Republican majority? In yeah, the very, very good question. I, I I think those waters run deep on that question, Ben. I really don't know how to answer it as of today. Um, money matters. Uh, it it really does, especially in these close elections, especially on the Senate level. Money can make a difference. Um, I, I, my, my guess is that there is a lot of misgivings behind the scenes um, about uh, the money that Trump has and as whether or not he deploys that. Now, there's still a possibility. You still have, you know, more than a month ago here. Mm-hmm. And you know, he, he, he could surprise a lot of people in the Republican Party and start spending that money. And, and if he did, if, you know, if he wanted to be the kingmaker in Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago rather, he, he would have a chance to be a kingmaker in a way that the rest of the country sees and not just the party. You understand the distinction there? Yeah. Uh, because Democrats, especially be paying attention to the checks that Donald Trump would be cutting to specific candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the things that is odd about this slate of Senate candidates uh, is how many political outsiders you have. You have Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, obviously. You have uh, General Don Bolduck in New Hampshire. You have uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Herschel Walker in Georgia, Blake Masters in Arizona, all people who have never held elected office or even you know run for office before uh, in terms of uh, this lineup of people. How do you cover these uh, folks with you know understanding that they are essentially new to the fray of politics mm-hmm. uh, and don't have the kind of, of records, but also the kind of talking points necessarily that traditional politicians have. Yeah, I think sometimes it helps, right, when you're authentic and you're not relying on your talking points. I think people can appreciate that. But you make a good point about uh, never really been tested on this political level before, and we'll see how it works out for them. I do know on the House side that uh, what the Democrats did in 2018 left an impression on the Republican Party, and that was they went out and they found women and they found minorities and they found a lot of Democrats with a military record whose background was in intel, um, national intelligence. And they used that to great advantage to to run up the score in 2018. I think for McCarthy, that was his strategy Yeah, on the House side this year. Um, I, if you asked him, he'll tell you he's recruited some great men and women uh, who come from all walks of life. And it's no longer a party of just white guys. You know, mm-hmm. it's women, it's Hispanics, it's um, uh, first, uh, first generation Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people with a military record, they can go a long way as a candidate. So I, I think they, they learned that four years ago and they're about to see um, how well and if that strategy pays off. Do you have a favorite house district in terms of a bellwether? Mm, yes, I got a couple. Okay. <laughs> um, so we go back to the number one seeds, right? Uh, off the top of my head, there is a district in Virginia. It's called Virginia 2. Uh, Democrat by the name of Lane Luria. Uh, you're probably well familiar with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a Republican. Well, the district changed. Uh, the lines changed. Um, and they have expanded into other areas of the Tidewater region in Southeast Virginia, and they've taken in more Republican voters. And the Republicans have recruited a good candidate with a military background, exactly what I said a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've, Virginia closes at 7 o'clock. Uh, based on history, they count pretty fast. Virginia, too, is definitely a number one seed. Um, and we'll see. 
Um, I, I went to some members of the Republican Party about a week ago, and I said, well, here's my logic. This tells me this, those, blah, 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 blah. And they said, Bill, you're missing, you're missing a big one. I said, well, and they said, Kentucky 6, Lexington, Kentucky, closes at 6 o'clock. And although that's not in a toss-up state, uh, sorry, a toss-up district, Ben, what you can do on election night is you can see the vote margin. You can see the turnout. You see the difference. And you, then you start to build this pattern of trends that will move into the 7 o'clock hour, into the 8 o'clock hour, into the 9 o'clock hour. And, you'll, and you, you can start telling your story. So when you've got all these numbers from all these different locations across the country, uh, we have to tell a story to viewers. And that's kind of the way, kind of the way we do it. But Virginia 2 is one. Um, there's one in North Carolina that I think will go Republican. It's a new open seat that was vacated by Ted Budd, who's running for the Senate race. North Carolina counts pretty fast, um, mm-hmm. and they, they close in eastern time zones. There's a couple in my home state of Ohio, Ohio District 1, Steve Shabbat, fighting for re-election. They redrew his district, took in parts of the city of Cincinnati that are more Democratic. He's fighting for his life. I don't know if he's going to win or not, whether the, the Democrat uh, Gary Landsman, the former city council member, can take that from him. Tim Ryan in Ohio 13 up around the Canton-Akron uh, area. Uh, Republicans feel really good about the candidate they recruited to take that seat. But um, you could also make an argument that, that Democrats who voted for Tim Ryan when he was a congressman there will turn out in greater numbers in that part of Ohio to vote for him as a senator. So you got a bit of a balancing act right here. Susan Wild from Pennsylvania, the northeastern corner of the state, uh, Congressional District 7. Above it is Congressional District 8. She was on CNN on Monday of this past week, Ben. And she said, all you got to know about the election coming up this this November is who wins my district and who wins Matt Cartwright's district? Who wins Pennsylvania 7? Who wins 8? If I hang on and he hangs on, we're going to maintain the majority in the House. I, I'd say... I'd say she's probably right with the strategy early on in the night. You watch that corner of the state to see uh, to see how it goes. But if both flip and if both go Republican, in all likelihood, we're going to back to that voter analysis and we'll make a call for the House majority. Um, maybe, maybe before 10 o'clock Eastern time, but that is strictly and only a guess. But you asked, and that's immediately what came to my mind. What is the conversation like before calling a race? We have statisticians, we have mathematicians, and I would argue we have political historians, and they're in a room by themselves. And Mm -hmm. I would say that that number, probably 15 people, um, it might be 20, but not more than that. And they have data that comes in directly from the Secretary of State's office based on counties, uh, based on precincts. And they're looking at from a, a historical perspective as well. And they're looking for the same trend that I'm that I'm probably looking for on the board behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what happened two years ago? What happened four years ago? You know, it, it, is this out of reach of the margin um, based on the number of people who register to vote there? And really smart people who know numbers and can make us understand them are, are, are making those calls. Mm-hmm. In many states, obviously now, it's not election day so much as it is election month or election fortnight. You know, it feels mm-hmm. like these elections, the voting goes on forever, starts very early and goes on for a very long time. 
Um, some people uh, now have this experience uh, in multiple cycles, not just the last one, of seeing the numbers on the screen be at a certain level. Uh, and then waking up the next morning or the morning after that and seeing the margins shift and sometimes shift dramatically. Uh, what would you advise them about the way that they think about those looking at those percentages and reading them? It's a it's a profound question, and it's very important, too, especially for keen viewers who are trying to follow the vote at home on election night. In the upper right-hand corner, there will be an estimated estimated percentage And that is an estimate of what we believe the vote will be for that particular district or county or state. In a big turnout election, that number sometimes, Ben, will bump up around 90 or even 95 percent. But as we saw in Virginia a year ago, we're we're pushing 99. It starts to pop down again. Mm -hmm. And And the reason for that is because... The turnout exceeded the estimate. So I would caution people, use that as a guide, but never a guarantee. Yeah. I mean, we just saw that in Kansas, for instance, where it was dramatically higher turnout than people had anticipated um, in terms of the Mm -hmm. the totals that we saw. And we've seen it in a number of primaries uh, this cycle. Um, Let's go out on, on this. When it comes to just you physically preparing for doing election night coverage, what do you do to prepare for it? Do you try to get as much sleep as possible? <laughs> How much caffeine do you use? Yeah. Uh, what, what's, what's your sort of approach to making sure that, that the bill hammer that people get at the end of the night is still able to, you know, have his brain work. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's good. Fair. Um, yeah. You want to get rest the previous weekend, but what, inevitably, Ben, we are a content machine and uh, we have a lot of colleagues and we try and satisfy a lot of them. Um, so easier said than done in getting that, that sleep the previous weekend. Here's what I find though. What I think is very important for people to understand about you and me and um, those of us who work around the clock on big election nights Information is our friend. Data feeds us. Um, If you have a race that's moving, 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 and then flat lines, and that goes on for a period of time, maybe it's a couple hours, hopefully it's not a couple of days. When the information dries up, we kind of dry up a little bit too. But Mm -hmm. when there is data and when the numbers are flowing, I, I, I find a certain energy through that information. And that's, that's all for me. That's really the adrenaline I need when a story is changing and we have the opportunity to update viewers on how that story is changing. That's, that's kind of the lifeblood of uh, getting through a couple sleepless nights. Bill Hammer. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Great questions, Ben. Great to be with you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I wanted to share with you uh, an insightful article that is uh, at War on the Rocks this week. It's titled Permanent Rupture, and it looks at the Nord Stream pipeline. It's written by Emily Holland, uh, who's a professor at the Naval War College. It reads in part, Before Monday, the possibility remained that Berlin would reverse course on Nord Stream if the social and political ramifications of recession and economic uh, became too severe. That is no longer the case. 
In fact, the gas bridge that bound Berlin and Moscow and provided a framework for Europe's relationship with Russia was always doomed. In 2021, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that in 25 years, Europe would no longer need Russian gas. Europe's plan to achieve climate neutrality by 2050 would, if achieved, also have rendered Russia's main point of leverage obsolete. But neither the EU nor Russia had a clear vision on how to manage the intervening transition. Now, the looming divorce is complete, and there is no going back to business as usual between Berlin and Moscow. For Russia, this means it is committed to accelerate its pivot to premium Asian markets. This primarily means China, which has a voracious appetite for Russian hydrocarbons, but is unwilling to pay European prices. This year, Russia became the number one supplier of crude oil to China, supplanting Saudi Arabia, while Russian sales of pipeline gas grew by 65% compared to 2021. At their recent meeting at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand, Putin and Xi Jinping also discussed further expanding the landmark power of Siberia, the $400 billion pipeline shipping Russian gas direct to China. But China is not a substitute for Russia's exports to Europe. Although it will likely match European demand in terms of volume, Asia will never match Europe as a source of revenue and political influence. Many of Russia's energy fields, particularly those that were being used to sell gas to Europe, are too far from Asian markets. It will take years and considerable capital to reorient Russia's energy trade from Europe to Asia. But with no other options, Russia and China will nevertheless be forced to work more closely together in the energy sphere, dramatically changing global energy flows. Europe faces a more immediate challenge in finding alternative energy supplies. Given numerous constraints, it is likely that it will have to sharply reduce its energy demand over the next two years. If Russia continues to supply Europe at current rates, Europe could muddle through this winter season with a moderate demand reduction. But this would mean entering summer of 2023 with very low amounts of gas and storage. Meanwhile, a dramatic reduction or total loss of Russian gas exports to the EU would be disastrous for the 2023-2024 winter season. Over the longer term, Europe will have to reckon with a major industrial transformation. Energy prices will remain elevated for the foreseeable future, making production unprofitable in energy-intensive industries. This week, 15 EU member states wrote to EU Energy Commissioner Kadri Simpson demanding an EU ceiling on gas prices to help protect industries that are collapsing under the weight of soaring hikes. A deep recession in Europe is inevitable. Deutsche Bank is predicting that euro area gross domestic product will fall by 3% in the next year. European governments are doing their best to shield their citizens and businesses from the impact of the energy crisis by nationalizing utilities, rolling out aid packages such as 100 euro checks to poor households, and capping energy price increases for households and small businesses. But these interventions are costly and do not address the inevitable longer-term societal adjustments. For decades, the competitiveness of European industry hinged on affordable Russian energy, but this arrangement has now ended. The loss of European competitiveness will disproportionately affect poorer Europeans who are already voting the radical right back into office. The Nord Stream pipeline was the last gasp of Ostpolitik, and this week's damage is likely fatal. Even in the midst of an energy crisis that is arguably more severe than that of 1973, it is almost inconceivable that European capitals will go back to pre-war energy arrangements. Even if European unity against Russian aggression does not hold in the coming years, the days of Russian energy dominance in Europe are over. States will accelerate clean energy transition, nuclear energy is poised for a renaissance, and Russia's place on the European continent will be forever diminished. 
There's a lot of big, big predictions there, but it's hard to argue with anything that Professor Holland writes here. At least in the moment, this is a major break from the path that Europe had been going on for decades. I'm Ben Dominic. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominic Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.